Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. You all got your book signed. We're, and apparently, Paul sold out of his, book, his books. <clears throat> if anyone, if anyone still has books to be signed by either of them, um, you can sign after the reading. And you can hang out at the bar until well, we can hang out. You can hang out till nine at least. But then we have to stop reading by nine. <clears throat> anyway, our next guest is Paul Trembling, who has won the Bram Stoker Award, the British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Award, and is the author of The Cabin at the End of the World. A Head Full of Ghosts, and most recently, the short story collection Growing Things and Other Stories. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous years' best anthologies. Please welcome Paul. Wow, I'm going to have to, like... <laughs> bend for the podium here a little bit. Sorry, I wore my tall boots. Um, thank you everyone for coming. You know, thank you for braving uh, the snow squalls. Uh, further, thank you for not resorting to cannibalism until after the reading. Um, too late. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Ellen and Matt, for for having me here. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's I always get so nervous. Like the first one, I did a reading here in 2009. That was the first time I had something published, and it was like. I felt like, wow, I'm actually a published author because I get to read at the KGB. And I still, I still have those butterflies. Uh, so thank you all for coming. Um, you know, thank you to Nathan for letting me read second so my cousin could see me read. <laughs> um, and it, and it's an honor to, it's an honor, yes. It's an honor to read with uh, my friend who, you know, who I admire both as a writer and a person. So um, I am reading from my novel called Survivor Song, uh, which is coming July 7th, 2020. <laughs> So I've taken uh, the prelude and really I had to edit and condense it, take out all the lovely character parts so I could read the whole thing <laughs> in you know 20 minutes. So we'll see how this goes. So this is the prelude to the novel and, and the prelude is titled In Olden Times When Wishing Still Helped. This is not a fairy tale. Certainly it is not one that has been sanitized, homogenized or disnified bloodless in every possible sense of the word, beasts and human monsters defanged and claws clipped, the children safe and the children saved, the hard truths harvested from hard lives, if not lost, then obscured, and purposefully so. It's quarter past 11 a.m., and yes, she is in the bathroom again. Before her husband Paul left three hours ago, she joked she should set up a cot in an office in here. Its, its first floor window overlooks the semi-private backyard. The grass is dead, having months prior surrendered to the withering heat of, a, of yet another record-breaking summer. 
The Heat will be blamed for the outbreak. There will be scores of other villains, some heroes too. It will be years before the virus's full phylogenic tree is mapped. And even then, there will continue to be doubters, naysayers, and the most cynical political opportunists. The truth will go unheeded by some, as it invariably does. To wit, Natalie cannot stop reading the 14-day-old Facebook post on her town's Stoughton Enthusiast page. There are currently 2,312 comments. Natalie has read them all. The post. Wildlife Service is informing the public that rabies vaccine baits are being dropped in the Massachusetts area in coordination with the Department of Agri Agriculture. The vaccine is in a blister pack, Army Green. Baits will be dropped by airplane and helicopter until further notice. If you see or find a bait, please do not disturb it. Not harmful, but not for human consumption. The photo of the bait pack. The size of a dollar coin, the top of the pack is rectangular, has a putty-like appearance, and the middle leavened like a loaf of bread. It looks like a green, bite-sized almond joy. A small sample of the unedited comments to the Facebook post in chronological order. This sounds really dumb. There has to be a better way. Vaccinating as many animals within a population is the only proven way to stop the spread. What if a child eats it? That can't be okay. They say it's some weird, scary new strain. A rabid animal is more dangerous than eating a vaccine. Vaccines is what makes you sick. Everyone knows that. I live in a wooded area and I have cats and grandkids. I don't want them dropping that shit near me. I ate four bait packs and now my erection is huge and green and it won't go away. Hulk smash. This isn't rabies. This is something new. They don't know. Regular rabies is slow. Usually takes weeks. They're saying this thing moves through you in minutes. 42 confirmed cases in Brockton, 29 in Stoughton, 19 in Ames. What are the symptoms? Headache and flu-like symptoms, but it gets so much worse. And you go crazy and you get weird and violent and you attack people and you're fucked and everyone is fucked because there is no cure. That's not true. The original post is about the vaccine. Stop trying to scare people. We've been quarantined. Nice knowing everybody. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> my sister said they're closing Good Samaritan Hospital in Brockton. Overrun. I called my pediatrician's office. And, there, and there's only a message saying, go to Good Samaritan. What are we supposed to do? They don't know what they're doing. We're screwed. We have to stay together and share good information. No more wild rumors and don't use the word zombie and just obviously false bullshit here. None of this is going to work. We should kill all the animals, kill all the infected. The bathroom window is latched shut. The white shade is pulled down and Natalie keeps both eyes on it. Urine rushes out of her. And though she's alone, she's embarrassed by how loud it is without the masking drone of the bathroom fan. AM radio crackles through the smart speaker in her, on her kitchen counter as though the poor reception and sound quality are nothing but a special effect from a radio play. It's time and hysteria getting a reboot. Paul, her husband, went to the Star Supermarket in Washington Plaza, which is only a little over a mile from their small two-bedroom house. The National Guard is overseeing the distribution of rations rations. This is where they are 15 days before their first child's due date. Fucking rations. It's an overcast gray autumn late morning. More out of superstition than fear, at least that's what she tells herself. Natalie has turned the lights out, turned the lights out in her house. With the bay window curtains drawn, the first floor is a cold galaxy of glowing blue, green, and red lights. 
mapping the constellation of appliances and power-hungry devices and gadgetry. Paul texted 57 minutes ago that he was almost inside the store, but his phone was at 6% battery, so he was going to shut it off to save the remaining juice for an emergency or if he needed to ask for Natalie's suggestions once inside the supermarket. He is stubbornly proud of his tech frugality, insisting on not spending a dime to upgrade his, many, his uh, cracked screen phone that has the battery life equivalent of a mayfly's ephemeral lifespan. <laughs> Natalie cursed him. Fuck you and your fucking shitty phone. I mean, hurry back, sweetie pie. Paul signed off with, the dude in front of me just pissed himself and doesn't care. I want to be him when I grow up. Make sure you don't come down here. I'll be home soon. Love you. Natalie closes the toilet lid and doesn't flush, afraid of making too much noise. She washes her hands, dries them, then texts, Are you inside now? Natalie considers driving to the supermarket. Maybe the sight of a 34-year-old pregnant woman walking to the front of the ration line and dropping F-bombs on everyone and everything would get Paul in front of piss pants into the store and home sooner, like now. She wanted to go with him earlier, but she knew her back, legs, joints, and every other traitorous part of her body couldn't take standing in line with him. She texts again, are you inside now? Her baby is on the move. Natalie imagines the kid rolling over to her preferred side. The baby always seems to lash out with a foot or readjust its position after she uses the bathroom. The deeply interior sensation remains as bizarre, reassuring, and somehow heartbreaking as it was the day she felt her first punches and kicks. She rubs her bellies and whispers. She rubs her belly and whispers. What good is saving his battery if we have an emergency here and I can't call him? Go ahead, say you're fucking right, Mommy. Natalie, Natalie is jittery enough to pace the first floor. Her feet are swollen, even though the prior day's unusual heat and humidity broke overnight. Everything on or inside, thanks but no thanks hemorrhoids, her body is swelling or already in a state of maximum swollen. She fills a cup with water and sits on the wooden kitchen chair, its seat and back padded with flattened pillows, which are affectations to actual comfort. The radio host reads straight from the Massachusetts bylaws regarding quarantine and isolation. Natalie opens the diary app on her phone, named Voyager. In her head, she says the name of the app in French, Voyager. She says it that way to Paul when she wants to annoy him. She's been using the app to keep a pregnancy journal. During the first two trimesters, Natalie had been using the app every day, and often more than once. She shared her posts with other first-time moms, and caused an amused stir within that online community when instead of posting pictures of her weekly belly growth, she shared pictures of her feet accompanied by her own hilarious jokes about how quickly the twins were growing. Natalie slowed down using the app considerably in the third trimester, and most of those entries devolved into a clinical listing of discomforts, the saga of the strange red pointless dots appearing on the skin of her chest and face, including a regaling of her doctor's shrug and deadpan, probably nothing, but maybe lupus. <laughs> and a litany-like reiterating of her fear that she'll be pregnant forever. Over the last 10 days, she has only mustered a few updates. Natalie opts to record an audio entry now. Bonjour, voyageur, c'est moi. Sorry, that's my terrible French. <laughs> uh, yeah, 15 days to go, give or take. I'm sitting alone in my dark house. Physical comforts are, physical discomforts are legion but not thinking about that so much because I'm utterly terrified, so I have that going for me. Wearing the same leggings for the fifth day in a row, I feel bad for them. They never asked for this. 
<sighs> I should turn on a light or open the curtains. Let some gray in. Don't know why I don't. Fucking Paul. Turn on your goddamn... His phone buzzes and a text from Paul bubbles onto the top of her screen. Finally out, bundles in the car, be home in five. She suppresses the urge to make fun of his actually typing the word bundles. Saying it is bad enough. She, she types, yay, hurry, but please safe. Please hurry. She tells the smart speaker to turn down the volume until it's inaudible. She wants to listen for Paul's car. The empty house makes its empty house sounds, the ones with frequencies attuned to imagination in worst case scenarios. Paul's car, in its clearing of a throat engine, finally chugs up their sleepy street and rounds the bend of their fence front yard. As his green machine crunches its way down their sloped gravel driveway, Natalie struggles into a standing position. She walks into the living room, her footsteps in sync with Paul's march on the gravel. She stops herself from calling out to him. He shouldn't walk so loudly. He needs to be more careful and soft-footed. Arms loaded with bags, he emerges from behind the car. Then he comically struggles to unlatch the fence's thigh-high entry gate without putting down any of the grocery bags. Only he's not laughing. Natalie is on the screened-in porch and whispers out one of the windows. Can I get that for you? She has an urge to laugh maniacally and an equally powerful urge to ugly cry. She opens the screen door, proud that she dares stick her head outside and into the quarantined morning. She briefly imagines an impossible time of happiness and peace years from now, regaling their beautiful and mischievous child with embellished adventure stories of how they survived this night and all the others to follow. Paul mutters his way through swinging the creaking gate halfway open, where it gets jammed, stuck on gravel, like always. He shuffles down the short cement walkway. Natalie stays inside the porch and holds open the door until he can prop it open for himself with a shoulder. Neither knows what to say to the other. They are afraid of saying something that will make them more afraid. Paul waddles through the house into the kitchen and drops the bags on the table. Upon returning to the front room, he over-exaggerates his heavy breathing. Natalie steps into his path, grinning in the dark. Way to go, muscles. I can't see shit. Can we open the windows or turn on a light? Radio said bright light could possibly attract infected animals or people. I know, but they meant at night. I'd rather play it safe. I get it, but, but put it on until I just get all the groceries in. Natalie whips out her phone, turns on the flashlight app, and shines it in his face. Your eyes will adjust. Yeah, thanks. That's much better. Paul wipes his eyes, and Natalie leans in for a gentle hug and peck on the cheek. Natalie is only a disputed three-quarters of an inch shorter than Paul's 5'9". Pre-pregnancy, they were, they were within five pounds of each other's weight, though those numbers are secrets they keep from each other. She asks, you okay? Not really. It was nuts. The parking lot was full. Cars parked on the islands and right up against the closed stores and restaurants. Most people are, you know, they're trying to help each other out, but not all. No one knows what they're doing or what's going on. When I, when I was leaving the supermarket on the other side of the parking lot, there was shouting, and someone shot somebody, I think. I, I didn't see it, but I heard the shots. And then there was a bunch of soldiers you know, surrounding whoever was on the ground. Then everyone was yelling, and people started grabbing and pushing. And there were more shots. Scariest thing I've ever seen. We're so... It's just not good. I think we're in big trouble. What he says next is an echo of a conversation from 10 days ago. We should have driven to your parents' place as soon as it started getting bad. We should go now. Oops, I lost my page. That's it, we're done. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, Natalie says, Paul, we can't. Why not? 
We're under official quarantine. They won't let us leave. We need to try. So are we going to what? Drive down 95 into Rhode Island just like that? Natalie isn't arguing with them. She really isn't. She agrees they are indeed in big trouble and they can't stay. She doesn't want to stay. And she doesn't want to go to an emergency shelter or an overburdened, they said overrun, hospital. She's arguing with Paul in the hope one of them will stumble upon a solution. We can't stay here, Natalie. We have to try something, she says. What if they arrest us? We might get separated. You were just telling me how crazy it was at Star Market. Do you think it'll be any better on the highways or the state borders? We'll find some open back roads. Natalie nods, but says, maybe you were at the worst point now. I'd even tell you there was a fox staggering in the middle of Washington Corner intersection like it was drunk. The quarantine will help get the spread of the illness under control, and it fucking dove right at my front tire. Everyone will be all right as long as we don't. Natalie continues talking, even though there's the unmistakable sound of footsteps on their gravel driveway. She's lived in the house long enough to know the difference between the sustained crunch and mash of car tires, the light maraca-like patter of squirrels and cats, the allegro rush of paws from the neighbor's dog, a goofy Rhodesian ridgeback the size of a small horse, and the percussive gait of a person. The steps are hurried, quickly approaching the house, yet the rhythm is all wrong, the rhythm is broken. There's a grinding lunge, a lurch, two heavy steps, then a hitching correction than a stagger and a drag. Someone or something crashes into the propped open gate and bellows out three loud barks. After the initial shock, Natalie all but melts with relief, believing or wanting to believe. What she hears is in fact Casey the dog. Shock turns to worry. She wonders why Casey would be out on her own. Natalie turns and she cranes her head and looks out the front door and through the porch. A large upright blur passes by the small row of screened windows. The barks return, and they are more like expectoria. What the hell is that word? <laughs> expectorating coughs. There is a man standing less than 10 feet away from her. He opens the screen door and says, in a dry, scratchy, but clear baritone, fall came and it began to rain, left out in the cold and rain. Then he grunts. <coughs> Natalie and Paul yell at the man to go away. They shout questions and directions to each other. The white man is large, over six feet tall, and closer to 300 pounds than he is to 200. He wears dirty jeans and a long-sleeved t-shirt advertising a local brewery. He steps through the door and fills their porch. With each coughing bark, he bends and contorts, and then his body snaps back into an unnatural rigidity. He points and reaches toward Natalie and Paul. Natalie can only see the shape and contour of the man's face as he's silhouetted by the dim daylight behind them. Natalie's fear morphs into a self-preservation shade of rage. Her fists clench, and she steps forward and yells, Get the fuck off our porch! Paul moves more, more nimbly and darts in front of Natalie. He swings the front door shut with enough force to rattle the frame and wall. His hand momentarily loses contact with the doorknob, and he is not able to get the door locked before the man is already forcing it back open. Natalie! Paul shouts her name as though it's a question, a question that is not rhetorical yet has no answer. The door swings open, forcing Paul back into the house. The bottoms of his sneakers squeak, and they slide over the wooden floor. Paul bends his legs, lowers his shoulder, attempting to gain purchase to find the leverage he has lost forever. His feet stop sliding, and they tangle, tripping him up. Paul falls onto his knees, and the fiberglass door sweeps him away. The man pushes the door open and presses Paul against the wall. He doesn't stop pushing. The man almost fully eclipses the white door. 
He's a dark side of the moon. The man shouts, I only want to speak. Let me in. Not by. He yanks the door back toward him and then smashes it into Paul. The man and the door become a simple machine, then a high-revving piston. The impacts of the door into her husband and her husband into the wall make thudding, sickening, hollow sounds. Paul's screams are muffled. The walls and floors shake. The big bad wolf is blowing their little house down. Natalie dashes, dashes the short distance into the kitchen. She knocks over a large blue cup, half filled with the water she should have been drinking earlier. And she backhands the smart speaker out of her way while grabbing the chef's knife out of, uh, from the cutting block. The front door slams closed. The volume of the men's shouting increases. Natalie yells, go away and leave him alone. And she runs back into the front room, knife held in front of her like a torch. Paul is sitting on the floor and scrabbling to get his feet under him. Blood runs down his forehead and leaks from a wound near his right elbow. The man crouches over Paul, looms over him, an object of undeniable gravity. His great hands are clamped on Paul's shoulders and pull him into a bear hug. Paul's left arm, left arm is pinned to his side. With his free hand, Paul punches and tries to push the man's face away from his. The man shouts indecipherable, plosive heavy gibberish and stops abruptly as though suddenly empty of the mad new language. And he bites Paul repeatedly. The bites are not sustained and they are not flesh rippers. They are quick like a snake strike. The man's mouth doesn't stay latched onto any one spot. In a matter of seconds, he bites Paul's arm and he bites Paul's chest and he bites Paul's neck and he bites Paul's face. Let me in, not by! Tremors rack the man's arms and body. He retches and shouts a moaning variant of no. He shakes his head and turns away, appearing to be doing so at the sight of blood, as though it upsets him or angers him, but he doesn't stop biting. Natalie charges across the room with the knife raised. Paul gains his feet and both men stand and straighten. The man still has Paul's torso constricted within his arms. Paul lashes out one last time with his right hand, connecting with the man's eye. The man shrieks and barks and takes two powerful steps forward, lifting and carrying Paul to the corner of the front room. The man drives his weight forward and down, smashing the back of Paul's head and neck into the thick oak seat of Natalie's mother's antique rocking chair. Upon contact, there is a wet pulpy pop and a sharp snap. Natalie brings the knife down, aiming for the center of the man's back, but he turns, knocking her arm off its trajectory. The knife drags across his left shoulder blade, carving a parabolic arc through his shirt and skin. The man pivots and is face to face with Natalie. He's middle-aged, balding, familiar in an everyman nondescript way. He might be from the neighborhood and he might not. His face is contorted into dumb, inchoate rage and fear. His mouth is ringed in foamy saliva and blood. He shouts and Natalie can't hear what he is saying because he is shouting too, or because she is shouting too. She re-raises the knife and jabs at his thick neck. The man blocks the knife with his hands, clumsily pawing at the blade, earning deep slices on his palms and the pads of his fingers. He cries out but doesn't retreat. He grabs her wrist. His hands are hot and blood slicked, and he pulls her into him against him. She can feel the appalling heat of his fever through the tights covering her belly. The man coughs in her face and his breath is radioactive. His cracked lips quiver in spasm, strobing out flashes of smiles and snarls. His tongue is an agitated eel darting between the oval of thick, vicious, th uh, viscous froth. Yeah. He is all mouth. His mouth opens. 
Natalie leans away and simultaneously she knees his groin, but without the, her weight under her. There is no leverage and there isn't much power behind the blow. The man pulls her right arm above her head. He quickly latches his mouth to the underside of her forearm and he bites. Her thin sweatshirt offers no protection. She screams and drops the knife. The crushing pressure combined with a sharp stinging burn at the broken skin, a pain unlike anything she's felt before, runs up her arm even after he lets her go and she stumbles backward and falls into a sitting position on the couch. The man opens and closes his bleeding hands and he briefly but loudly sobs as though in recognition of what's broken in him and what he has broken. The man pivots and returns his attentions to Paul, who hasn't moved, who isn't moving. His head is between the, uh, Paul is splayed on his back. His head is between the wide runners of the rocking chair and rotated toward the wall. The amount of rotation isn't natural, isn't possible. There's a bulge in his neck, the skin taut over a naughty protrusion, a catastrophic physiological and topographical error. Natalie clambers off the couch and despite the wildfire pain in her arm and the warning stitch in her lower left side, she bends to the floor and picks up the knife. Her bite wound throbs, the pain expanding, radiating with each pulse. The man lifts Paul and resumes biting and thrashing him about. He bounces Paul's body off the door, the wall, and the rocking chair. Paul issues no cries of pain. There is no voluntary motion. Natalie sees a horrifying glimpse of the back of Paul's caved and deflated skull. The boneless slack with which his head lolls and dangles demonstrates beyond doubt that his neck doesn't work anymore, will never work again. Natalie brings the knife down with both hands and half buries the blade between the man's shoulder blades. She lets go and the knife stays buried. The man groans and drops Paul between the rocking chair and the wall. Some part of, ball, uh, some part of Paul's body gongs off the metal panel of the baseboard heater. The man spins around unsteadily, reaching behind his back for the out-of-reach knife. He is a wobbling top near the end of his rotations. He is out of breath, and the man's coughs are weakening huffs and puffs. His revolutions morph into a slow orbital path away from Natalie in the front door. He plods into the kitchen, leaving a trail of red handprints on the wall to his right. His heavy, ponderous steps clapping on the hardwood floor become a shuffle. Natalie imagines nestling next to Paul's body in the corner of the room while he's still warm, and then closing her eyes and wishing, praying, willing the house to collapse on them so that she never has to open her eyes again. Natalie doesn't stay with her dead husband. Instead, she steps onto the porch on shaking legs. She holds her wounded arm away from her belly. She stifles the urge to cry out to Paul, to tell him sorry and goodbye. A cool breeze chills the sweat on her face. As the sputtering big bad wolf disappears somewhere deeper into their little house, Natalie quietly shuts the front door behind her. This is not a fairy tale. This is a song. Thank you. Uh, July 7th. 2020, there'll still be snow squalls. Well, thank you and sorry for the accompaniment upstairs. But anyway, um, what, you know, thanks, thanks for coming. Hope you'll come next month. And um, if anyone else has more books to be signed, come by, come over here. And thanks for coming and see you next month.
You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.